So Revelation 19, and uh, while you guys turn there, let's pray. God, your advent, your coming, your return, when we, when we consider it and think about it, it alarms us. It wakes us up. It puts an urgency into the present. I ask that you would wake us from drowsy worship. From the sleep that neglects love. And the sedative that misdirects our frenzy. Lord, awaken us now as we look at this passage to your coming and bend our angers into your peace that we can spread the good news of your salvation in and through Jesus to our neighbor, family, self, friend, and world. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Good evening. This is a box. It has four walls when you're inside. It has a roof. It has a floor. This is also what Babylon does to reality. Babylon defines, it dictates, it limits reality according to Babylon's rules. So it determines who is inside the box and who is outside the box. What is true and what is false. And so as we've been looking in Revelation and Babylon has come up, we see that it's this system ruled, it's this city, the system ruled by the beast, the Antichrist. And it, as we looked at last week, it is oppressing a lot of human lives in order to enrich other human lives. And they define reality so that we think the way Babylon wants us to think, so that the beast can have his way. That we desire the things Babylon wants us to desire, so that we desire the beast and his way. This box is what happens when we allow the Babylon in our world to define our reality. But the good news is that the gospel, the exciting good news that God has broke into our scene with salvation in and through Jesus, the gospel proclaims an alternative reality. If this box is the reality as Babylon teaches it and defines it in our world, the gospel stands out here and says, there is a whole lot more. There's a bigger possibility and a truer reality outside the box. That makes people nervous. Those who make a living and a killing by keeping the walls together and the roof on this box... The gospel threatens their security. Because the gospel says the box is temporary, the box is perishable, it's frailty. But then there's others who may not be as privileged inside this box. And the news that there is something outside excites them and energizes them and causes them to not see how they can climb their way inside this limited 
claustrophobic confined space, but how they can actually bore their way through the walls of the box and experience and explore the deeper beyond. This is what the gospel is calling us to do, not dominate the box, not say you all in here need to be more like us in here. That's very small minded. That's our idea of we know everything about God and we want everyone to know what I know about God exactly as I understand it. (laughs) You're a human. Let's just start there. okay? Uh, but this is not the gospel. The gospel is not dominate the box. The gospel is rip a hole in the box so that the world world can see more beyond. So, as we look at Revelation 19, we have been in this second half of the book in which we see a lot of anti-Christ, a lot of rulers, a lot of kingdoms that are against his policies and his ways, and we now come to 19 where we see Jesus as depicted as anti-Caesar, <laughs> anti-beast. So we have the Antichrist, and we know what he's all about, doing everything Jesus didn't do, crucifying people that don't worship him, and excluding people that don't put his name on their forehead or on their hand. But Jesus comes in and is anti-that. He says, I'm not about exclusion, putting some people out of the box and some in, and privilege and rank, and I'm about bringing all people to myself. I'm about laying down my life for my enemy, not crucifying my enemies. So Revelation, we're going to see now, it's a, it's a phrase you're not quite as familiar with, huh? Anti-Caesar, anti-empire, anti-world ruler, right? That's exciting. Okay, so let's go ahead and let's look at uh, the chapter. Three scenes. These three scenes are going to present to us the three ways those inside the box can get outside the box. Or at the least... Three ways in which we can start boring holes in the box so that those inside can at least see there's something beyond. So scene one, we're going to see hallelujah choruses breaking out. Heaven is rejoicing over the fall of Babylon. Scene two, we're going to see in verse six that there is a meal the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is happening, and blessed is the one who is invited to this marriage supper. So we see that there's this extremely extravagant feast that's going to happen. And then uh, in verse 11, we get to the third and final scene, which is the actual return of Jesus himself coming to the earth. And it gets interesting. You might recall... Revelation is a series of three overlapping stories. The first is about the lamb reclaiming the earth. The second is about what's happening on the earth while that's happening in heaven. The beast and the dragon and his prophet are building up this Babylon and they're subjecting the world and seducing them to come after them. And then story three, which we began in chapter 17, a couple weeks ago. Story three is what happens when story one and story two collide. And we see that confrontation tonight. So, let's go into part one of our chapter, the song. Verse one, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Crying out, hallelujah, 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Remember, the prostitute is the Babylonian system. You saw that in 17. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cry out, verse 3, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, meaning utter destruction. Babylon will not resurrect from this. Verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. We'll pick up the rest when we get to the next section. There was a moment in the Psalms, Israel's songbook, 150 psalms. There was a moment in which it looked like Babylon was going to win. Psalm 137. There's this moment where the psalmist is extremely sad. And he says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, Jerusalem, God's home. And on the willows there, we hung our lyres, or our harps. So there's this psalm in which there's this picture of Israel in captivity in Babylon, and they stop singing the psalms of God, because they're depressed. They're shoved into this new reality, which Babylon's dominionating. I'm totally made up that word, I think. But anyways, they're there, and they are sad and depressed, so they... Stop singing. They hang their harps up on the trees. Then comes the good news of Jesus, according to Luke. And Luke slam dunks the beginning of his gospel with singing. Do you see what he's doing? That broken song can now be sung again. So what does he do? He has Mary sing what many of you might know as the Magnificat. She sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in his salvation. Mary begins to launch into this song, which the church still sings today. Then in chapter 2 of Luke, while the shepherds are out watching their flocks by night, the angels come out and they begin to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those with whom God's favor rests. Another song breaks out and it's as if out into the dark, dim, mute world, the song of God is returning and saying, it's okay. Babylon and its system, which we've seen all the way from the Tower of Babel up to whatever's happening today and into the future Babylon, that system will not always have the last song played. Because with Jesus comes a new song and liberation. So Luke starts off the New Testament like that. Then Paul picks up the thread. And in Ephesians and in Colossians, he commands the church to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, making melody in your heart to God. Let this song keep resonating from person to person. The Savior who came and started the song that died, keep it going by singing with and to one another. 
So after service, we're going to have opera lessons so that you guys can carry on in there. I'm just kidding. Uh, so, but Revelation then does catch this theme. And we read four times the word hallelujah. If you want to underline them, underscore them, highlight, fireworks, whatever you do. That word four times is the only four times the New Testament uses the word hallelujah. I did the same exact thing. I was like, huh, never really noticed that hallelujah. It makes sense. It's a Hebrew word, so it's an Old Testament thing. I was like, wow, we just throw that around like it's American or something. And it's just here. Which then spoke to me that hallelujah was reserved for the very end of the Bible. The very end of the last book of the Bible. Yeah, if you've been here for some time, you may remember when I taught the last part of the Psalms. The Psalms end with this climatic crescendo of exuberant joy, exclaiming hallelujah ten times. The last five Psalms each start with and end with the signature hallelujah. Because this whole expedition of exploring the darkest, deepest valleys of emotion to the highest pinnacles of ecstasy, this whole journey through the Psalms finally ends with saying, look, no matter what happens in the 150 chapters, it ends in hallelujah. It ends with praise Yahweh is what it means. That's how the story ends. That's how history ends. And no matter how dark and strong the grip of Babylon is, no matter how tightly sealed the box is, hallelujah gets the last word. Which is why our singing is so important. Singing is actually an act of resistance to this box As we know from history, dictators, one of the things that they seek to control is the arts. Because the arts teach people to see something beyond the immediate sensory stream in front of them. And Babylon does a great job of muting the new songs out there and continually playing on repeat, recycling the same old lyrics to this dulling, numbing melody, just hit after hit. Babylon's like, this is cool. So everyone say it's cool. And everyone's like, it's cool. Yeah, we follow that playlist. And Babylon's like, you don't even know I'm recycling the same boring stuff over and over. And it's numbing our minds out. Bless you. And then hallelujah comes in. And it just breaks into this box. And it says, wait, there's a song the world needs to hear. And it doesn't sound like this monotonous recycled hit machine of the beast is awesome and so am I. So that's why in chapter 14, you might remember, go back left a little bit, um, John sees 144,000 with the lamb. And it says in verse 3 that there are harpists playing harps in verse 2. In verse 3, they were singing a new song before the throne. And no one could learn that song except the 144. New songs birth new hopes. And the act of singing the new song and the new hope, the act of exclaiming hallelujah is a resistance movement against Babylon's box. Because those who sing submit themselves to the rhythm and rhyme of God 
and his reign. See, God's kingdom marches to a different beat than the box does. And those that sing hallelujah submit themselves to this rule. And the very act of saying we have a new song says we defy the powers that have defined our reality. We see an alternate reality. Therefore, you can find out real quick the hope level. You know, you can find someone's heart rate. You can find someone's hope rate by how in tune they are with song. And I don't just mean are you a music person or not. This is deeper than that. But the song of the church, a songless people is a hopeless people. And God protect the church from ever mimicking Babylon with recycling boring hit after boring hit and calling that a new song. But may God raise up the creative artists and musicians who are brave enough to resist the box. That we can have hope and sing about the alternate reality we follow. Part two, the meal. Verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of mighty of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. That's the fourth one. So we already just read that. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. There you go. Hallelujah is that resistance song. Because it says, nope, not the beast. God reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. That's big because we have budgets, you know, with our weddings, the way we can do things in America. And I remember it was a big thing, like when I was engaged, like talking about how much we want to spend for our wedding. And so like, you go through everything, like, ah, we only have so much left for food, but we got to have people have food at, like, at the reception. And it's like, you're like, see, how cheap can we get it? But yet let them be full by the end. So we settled on pizza. <laughs> it was good quality. You got to know me. I don't eat any pizza. Anyways, uh, <laughs> But back in the Bible times, marriage feasts were like the feasts. We feast like weekly. You know, if we go out to eat at restaurants, you are a regular feaster. We eat a lot in America. But in these times, you needed an excuse to eat a lot. And weddings were a great excuse. And you ate a lot. And the Jews did it for seven days. That is wonderful. (laughs) No wonder they got their kids married off as fast as they could. They wanted a good time. But imagine God's marriage supper for all his people. I doubt this is just one little event right before Jesus returns. I think this is an era in which we enjoy once he comes. The angel said to me, right, verse 9, this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true, the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Remember, that's the angel. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. Didn't you get the hallelujah part we just did? (laughs) You must not do that, John. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, God likes to eat. That's very clear. Anybody who's followed Jesus in the Gospels knows he likes to eat. And in the beginning, in the Eden, it was God's design to commune with humanity over eating from the tree of life. He wanted to eat with us. It was we who said, rain check, I've got a date with the serpent over here at this tree. And by eating that meal, we cursed the earth. (laughs) The first meal in scripture curses the earth. Enter Isaiah who says, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's going to be a bigger and better meal that's going to bless the earth. That's going to fix the earth. That's going to heal the earth. That's going to cure the earth. Isaiah 25 This is such a great passage. So you can try to flip there if you want, but I'm going to keep going because you know me, I can't talk too long. You guys will not like that. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says this. Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. That's just like lazy poetry for what you love. Think of done the best way you can. Rich food, like, come on. (laughs) That's great. Rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, or your favorite thing. Of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up. Now, here's what happens at this feast. It's not just stuff yourself with ecstasy in Jesus. And I'm sure you're not going to have that inflammatory feeling you get at Thanksgiving, where you just want to, like, sloth your way into better health. (laughs) Um, This is going to be like nothing like, wow, I don't even feel like I've eaten. This is great. Uh, But while you're eating, verse 7 shows us this. He will swallow up on this mountain the coverings that is cast over all peoples. What covering? He says, the veil that is spread over all nations. So there's this like dark blanket that just is over the world. And then he says in verse 8, And this is our clue to what this covering is. He will swallow up death forever. That's what's blanketed the world. Death. And at this feast, he's going to remove that blanket as if a world we've never imagined, as if what's outside the box suddenly becomes exposed for us. And God will wipe away all tears from all faces and the reproach of the people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That is Isaiah's version of what's happening here in Revelation. And then comes Jesus. So, you know, Adam and Eve... They have the wrong date at the first meal. And then things are really bad. Isaiah says, but I see something promising. Then Jesus comes and he comes and he doesn't just like, oh, there's a mention like, oh yeah, Jesus ate. Like, oh yeah, so he's human. No, it's like all the time. It's like Jesus is really into food, especially in Luke's gospel. He's eating. There's always this thing about not just what Jesus is eating, but who he's eating with. 
And there the Pharisees, the, tax, uh, the religious leaders are grumbling that he's eating with tax collectors and, quote, sinners. That's probably just everybody who's not like us. And they're just grumbling about that. But yet there he is eating with them. And then when people are hungry, he takes a boy's lunch and multiplies it to feed 5,000 people. And Jesus is eating through the Gospels. And then it climaxes at the Last Supper with his disciples right before he dies and says, I want you from now on forevermore to keep eating to remember me. Not how much I ate, but how much I loved you. And to mimic that as you go. Last Supper is sort of a misnomer when you think about it. Because we're going to take communion tonight. It was more like the first supper of a new world, of an alternate reality. It was the first supper that said, we will not eat Babylon's bread. It was really a forecasting, a looking forward, an appetizer of this marriage supper of the Lamb. And every time we come to Jesus' table and eat with him and take the communion, we are eating the appetizer, the very small sample size of what's to come. When we do communion as a group, we are as a group. What The way you see people protest against governments, that's what we do with communion against Babylon and the beast. Our meal together says we serve a different king who leads us through a different way. He doesn't hack people with the sword of Caesar. He takes the hit for us on the cross of God. That's what communion says. It is highly revolutionary and dangerous. And yet we eat it together. And we don't just eat it together, but Jesus showed us who he ate it with. Jesus ate it with the outsiders, the ones that Babylon in Israel, it was manifested through the religious leaders, the ones who said, yeah, these people aren't worthy to eat these meals with you, Jesus, because they're sinners and such. But Jesus says, I don't have walls. I don't have a box. I go out of that box to eat with the people that Babylon has abused, broken, and cursed. That's who I'm eating with. And in Luke 13, Jesus says, uh, he's talking about this feast probably, Luke 13, verse 29. He says that people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Sounds like the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're coming from everywhere to eat with God. Then he says this highly seditious phrase. And behold... Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. That's Luke thirteen twenty nine to 30. Defying the box which said, no, these people are first, these people are last, and you're outside, and you're inside. You're not cool, and you are cool. You're hot, and you're not. And Jesus says, at my meal, from north, south, east, and west, they will come, and that whole system will be flipped upside down. Or just to use our illustration, the box will be burst open and there will be no more caste system. That's what his meal is. And that's why it is a rebellion against Babylon's box. Because our meal says all people, regardless of their merits in Babylon's eyes, are welcome at this table. And the beast cannot allow just anybody to be welcome. Power is by exclusion. And that's what we've seen from the beast so far. 
So every week we do communion, and we must get into the mindset of seeing that this is what we're doing. We are siding with the bread and with the wine, the cup, that we, with this preview of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are siding with the Lamb, not with the beast. We are siding with His way of doing things and not with the beast's way in the box in Babylon. That's what we do every time we take communion. And so, in a sense, every week or day or however often you take, your communion is an altar call in which you recommit yourself to the revolution against Babylon. And we have to understand when we take it, let's not get into the humdum thing of, yup, Jesus loves me, crunch, crunch, sip. We're signing up for something very dangerous to the box of the world. And that's a commitment. Are you in? I want to see what happens when the walls come down. So part three, we have song, we have meal. Now part three, we have word. Revelation 19 verse 11. So this is, you just got to see the whole vision. Okay. It's kind of crazy. I'll do my best. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. ESV puts an exclamation point. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Note, it's in righteousness that he does the judging and the warring. So it's not quite the way Caesar would, or your rulers of the world would do war. We're going to look at that in a minute. His eyes, verse 12, are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Remember, he's the king of kings, not just one king. He's got them all. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a... John's like, I know, but you don't, so I'm not going to tell you. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So when you see the armies, they're addressing him, Sergeant Word of God, or, you know, whatever. That's the name he's going by. And his uniform is peculiar. Did you see that? Garments dipped in blood. That's fearsome. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Presumably, that's us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's all imagery from Isaiah and the Psalms. If you have a cross-reference Bible, look at it. It's pretty cool. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, ye birds, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast... And the kings, his little minions, his puppets of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. Whoa, not a single shot was fired. You're like getting ready for this whole like the armies of heaven are here and the beast and his armies are here. And you're like, this is getting exciting. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, what did I just read? The beast was captured. There's a lot of like creativity in there, isn't there? It's, it's done. 
It wasn't even a shot across the bow. Silly beast. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. In other words, all those who gladly stayed inside the box, because the beast said it's great. Those two, these two, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. I reckon we'll talk about the lake of fire next week, but I'm not going to even talk about it tonight. Uh, 21. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Okay, so. We take communion. The meal always leads to war. You sign up for the rebellion. You signed up for a revolution, brothers and sisters. It always comes with war. So we see the beast gathering his camp attire, you know, whatever, (laughs) to say, no, put him down. But you're not alone. Know that. When we leave tonight and we go into the war, you're not alone. You have the armies of heaven with you. You have the one who sits on the horse, Jesus, with you, leading you. You're not alone. It's interesting, uh, this war, it's very brutal, at least with the birds gorging themselves with flesh, the, the bloody robe. You're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is not the Jesus of the Gospels, is it? Uh, but before we get crazy, well, when I was, and maybe you're, you're with me here, um, the last time I taught Revelation, like seven years ago or something, I, I said this illustration to my youth group. I said, so it says that Jesus conquers them with the word of his mouth, or the sword of his mouth, right? And all I could think was like, out of his mouth was coming this like flaming, bawling can of raid against an army of ants. And they all fall down, dead, done, instant. Like, that's just like how I imagined it. I was like, wow, that's power. But then I read the rest of the Bible. Not after that. I, well, but then I started to put things together. And I started, I started to ask questions. So I asked questions. I'm going to ask questions tonight. I'm going to show you this. Second Corinthians 10. At least write this down. At least 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Paul says this. For though we walk in the flesh, that's just, he's just talking about your body. Though we are human, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We don't wage war in a human way, okay? So though we're flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, now he elaborates, he destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
In a world that's moving to consolidate into the empire's box, Paul's saying we are taking thoughts captive and not letting them get captured by that. We're moving them towards Christ. We're destroying the arguments that say these people aren't worthy, but these people are. We're destroying the box. We're trying to open minds to God, open eyes to God. That is our warfare. So Paul made it very clear. It's not according to the flesh. Warfare according to the flesh is what we see threatened by uh, national leaders and in the news. And ISIS is good at warring according to the flesh. My body taking out anger upon your body. So is Jesus warring according to the flesh? Or is he warring with the weapons of God here? Further question This is the second coming of Jesus. Why would his second coming be different than his first coming? In other words, he comes with the gospel of good news and peace, but the second coming is like, that was nice for a season, but now I'm violent and angry. (laughs) Did he take his meds? (laughs) I mean, that was horrible. I shouldn't, but... But that's what you kind of make it look like, just to starkly put that in an illustration for you. Why would the one who in his first coming came to die on a cross, then come with that cross being wielded as a sword to cut down those that crucified him and hate him? The very ones, you might remember that Luke said he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they've done. Is that forgiveness? Saying, oh yeah, now that I'm back, I can actually deal with you. So these are the questions that I have to ask. What I want us to do is look closer at four specific things I think can give us at least some sort of answer. Um, Remember, too, that this is anti-Caesar writing. This is anti-beast, anti-ways of the world. So Jesus is depicted like the mighty emperor himself on a horse with an army, all majestic with crowns on his head. But it's to make an ironic point. Oh, he might look like Caesar, and you're going to expect him to act like Caesar, but then all of a sudden he acts anti-Caesar. That's going to be what I propose you see here. So first, let's observe the lamb. This is not in our text, but it's very clear uh, throughout the book of Revelation that Jesus has been called the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. I can't remember how many times I even looked at, oh well. I can't remember how many times that it mentions the lamb. You can do this really easily online. But every time that it mentions, uh, six of the times that it mentions Jesus as a lamb, which by the way is way more. His name in Revelation is lamb, not Jesus. He's way more called lamb than Jesus. And six times that he's called the lamb, it's intentionally associated with his suffering, bleeding, or being slain. First appearance is in Revelation chapter 5, in which he's about to take the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. You may remember this epic scene. John begins to weep because nobody can take the scroll. But then one of the elders comes to John and says, Hey, 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 it's okay. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion has overcome and is worthy to take the scroll. So John hears from the elder, the lion, the majestic, roaring, mighty lion is about to come and take over. That makes sense to every human being. Because Caesar is a lion. Most kings in ancient times put lions on their thrones. Lions were ferocious. They were vicious. They slashed. They were the king of the jungle. So why wouldn't I want to be a lion? 
the lion. So then it says John turns to see the lion and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What? That it, you can't get any more opposite than that. Maybe a mouse would be more opposite, but that's pretty close to the opposite you can get. The ferocious lion that kills and slashes to the lamb that is slashed and killed. That is dramatic difference. And it's really, the point is that what John is saying is, look, wake up people. We live in a world of lions, but our lion, the true lion, is actually a lamb who doesn't go around flexing his muscles, but saying, you know what? I'm going to lead through radical, radical revolutionary love. Even if it takes me to Caesar's sword, the cross, which happened. And we have to ask ourselves, because you hear this all the time. Jesus came first as a lamb. He's coming again as a lion. I challenge you to show me that in scripture. What was wrong with the lamb? You're suggesting there was something, there was a flaw about the lamb. That it was kind of half Jesus, but now he's real Jesus. Now he's a lion. (laughs) Revelation never shows Jesus as a lion. It mentions it. That was the closest we got. The lion of the tribe of Judah, but John sees a lamb. Stark point being made right there. He's never seen as a lion. And even here, we're going to see his posture as being that of the lamb. Number two. So we saw the lamb. Number two, now the horse in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. White was usually the horse of victory of triumph. You might remember back in chapter six, the red horse was the horse of war. If the goal here was to conquer through the sword, Jesus would be on a red horse. But the one who rode the donkey of peace into Jerusalem has not shifted his strategy. He simply shifted the message. He isn't giving up the donkey for war. He's saying, I have one. I'm not here to win. I did win when I rode the donkey into Jerusalem and submitted myself to the worst weapon that Babylon could throw against me, death. And when people willingly throw themselves to that weapon, it loses its power. And this is what Jesus did. And now he comes not as a marching army, but as a parading army. The parade is what you do when you've already won. He's not fighting for victory, but from victory. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, Paul talks about the cross making Jesus lead a parade in which the dark powers are being shown off behind him as his captives. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Number three, the robe. We have the lamb, the horse, the robe. This is in verse 13. He, Jesus, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Battle scene, like, wow, this is a vicious general. He's got, you know, war remains all over himself because he's just that in the midst of the fray. But wait, read carefully. The battle hasn't happened. So whose blood is on his garments? We take the larger revelation story. It's the lamb who has been slain. He's wearing his own blood. 
He's not coming to say, oh, you better look out. I'm going to get your blood. He's coming to say, do you still reject me even though I wear my own blood for you? This is so backwards. I, sometimes I feel crazy talking like, anyone with me? Uh, Amen. He's winning the war by dying for his enemies. And he's still doing that here. This is the great gospel paradox. That everything's so backwards it doesn't always make sense. For example, Paul saying in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, Look, God is choosing the weak things to confound the strong things. The foolish to confound the wise. He's doing everything the wrong way. Because God is actually trying to show the world the right way to go. That the true power of his kingdom is not by being Babylon and boxing everything, but it's by giving yourself away. And then fourth. So we have lamb, horse, the robe. Fourth, the word. So we saw... One, his name, in verse 13, is the word of God. Second, we see in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, if the sword was meant to kill, it's in the hand. But the sword is in the mouth. And putting that next to his name, the word of God, it becomes very, very clear that our author of Revelation and author of the Gospel of John is saying something very profound. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that was, I'm going to paraphrase now, I'm not that brilliant memorization, (laughs) but the Word created all things, and He's the source of life, and He came to the darkness, and the darkness did not understand Him. But so important that the word, John says, was the word that created life in the world. The word came and brought life to the world. That's the word we see. And the, the sword is coming out of his mouth. And we see Jesus do this in the Gospels. We see it at his Capernaum synagogue, where there are demoniacs start screeching out in the middle of the synagogue. And Jesus, with this word, tells the dark powers, the Babylonian beasts in him, come out of him. Did the guy die? That would be the sword in the hand. He wasn't killed, he was cured. That's the sword of the mouth of the Son of God. Legion, that demoniac with a legion of demons in him. Jesus comes to him, speaks, they leave. He isn't slain, he is saved. That's the word we're looking at. That's the sword we're looking at. In the hand of Jesus. Uh, The mouth. (laughs) See, there you go. We're being human again. (laughs) In the mouth of Jesus. And so I do want to propose that, yes, you see a graphic, gory image of war, but it's intentional to show the stark contrast. A human scene is developing, and then the true human Son of God comes and shows this is the way of the Lamb. And it's meant to be striking. Wait, this doesn't make sense. That's right. The gospel is an alternate reality. This makes sense. It's been downloaded into your brain. That's the way Babylon's box works. The gospel's meant to shock you into the real reality. And I propose that that's what we see in the return of Jesus. However, 
One more thing about the word. I suspect that most of you have already been in this battle on the wrong side or are now or will be soon. And what I mean is this. Have I not been slain by his word? Has it not tore me up and broken me? Has it not saved me and cured me? Am I not in need of that sword continually coming into my life? And yet I find myself over and over so busy thinking about how can we get them or get that. And I need constantly to hear the word and let it come to me to realize that. Yes, the beast may very well be a future world leader, and that's really scary. But there's still a beast in me in the meantime. There is a beast in me that wants to box the world into neat little explanations where these people don't fit, but these people do. And this is how I see everything. And I can justify my actions because, well, it works in my box. And then I go and I accuse people. I attack people. I blame people. I break people. I curse people. I condemn people. I crush people. I disdain people. I diminish people. I exclude people because I have to keep the box intact. And anything that threatens to burst or bore a hole into this box to show that I might not be quite in the right reality, I have to, I have to silence that. That's the beast in me, and that's terrifying. It's terrifying not just to think about, but to actually see that at work. I let go of my self-control, and I was angry. And we often think, well, because they didn't do what I wanted. Oh, oh, you're saying their box wasn't shaped like your box and didn't fit inside your box very neatly, huh? But we blame them. That's the way we look at things. Well, it didn't work in my universe. What happened is you have the beast in you. You are the beast, just to put it frankly. And you saw it come out. It's so much easier to say they did it than to say, I need to be slain by the sword of his mouth. I need to be cured and saved. So, brothers and sisters, we're about to go to communion. The worship team can get ready for that. The way out of this box and the way of letting the beast not rule you is to move out of it into the alternate reality called the kingdom of God called the marriage supper of the Lamb, called the New Jerusalem, to move out there. How? Sing, 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 and keep singing new songs, songs that mean something to you and move you and show you that there's more than the box. Eat, eat together, eat the communion tonight and keep eating with those who aren't worthy of eating with you. Eat, and we will see the world say they ought not to eat together. Oh, wait, we've heard that before. Yes, it's a message that there is a greater love than what the box has shown us. And listen, please, please, please listen. Listen to the word of Jesus. And we will find ourselves continually challenging the box, pushing its borders till it threatens to burst. And that, my friends, is what the gospel looks like.